one thing I see happen often, and it is it is heartbreaking, is that first year of private practice, it's really, really easy to forget about saving for taxes. But we see often first year practice owners just spend everything. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us, because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, Mental Health Revolutionaries. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. This would not be possible without listeners like you. Today, I am interviewing Julie Harris, and Julie is launching her new book, Profit First for Therapists. It comes out May 2nd and can be pre-ordered now. You'll hear about that in the interview. And Julie has some amazing wisdom and has worked with so many therapists. That is her niche as an accountant. So I'm excited for this episode and I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, here is my episode with Julie Harris of Profit First for Therapists and of Green Oak Accounting. Okay, so welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm here with Julie Harris. And Julie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Erin, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled. Okay, so we'll start where we usually do, which is tell us about yourself, your work, your passions. Yeah, so I am an accountant, the most exciting job in the world. I I love numbers. I feel like numbers are my, you know, my superpower. I am the owner of Green Oak Accounting. So we are the largest accounting firm serving the mental health industry in the United States. I am the author of Profit First for Therapists, which is Profit First is a financial cash flow system that is really, really helpful and works really well within the mental health space. And then I also am the host of the Therapy for Your Money podcast. So that's kind of me in a nutshell and, and, and all those little things. I was on Julie's podcast and I had some and, and, ands, and yours are amazing. These and, and, ands. As you were saying, you're the largest accounting firm serving the mental health field and you're the owner. Yeah. I, I have some ideas about that, but maybe you can well, tell us a bit. We used to be the only, right? We we used to be the only accounting firm serving this industry. Now we are not, but we are the largest. And yeah, I would say the best also. There, I said it. I love that you said it. No bias. We just know she's the best. <laughs> okay, cool. I may be a little bit biased, but you know, indulge yeah, me. That's cool though. I, I think you deserve to be biased. And I want to also put a plug for anyone who hasn't heard of Profit First this is amazing. And I'm really excited for your book to come out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, me too. And we maybe we can dive into profit first a little bit more, but like it, it just works so well. I find that with the mindset of therapists, they usually just want to know, like, am I doing the right thing? Right. They're kind of compliance driven. Like, is this okay? Am I doing okay? Even though therapists who are doing really well financially wonder, like, eh, am I on the right track? So this is a great guideline where you kind of have gold posts where it's not just this is the formula, you must follow this exactly, but it it gives you some leeway in there to, you know, serve your values and how you want to run your practice 
but also give you a sense of like, everything is going to be okay financially within those guidelines. Yes. You said a lot there. I love profit first for all of those reasons and compliance driven. Ooh, that true though, right? But it's, I mean, for me, the passion I have is fulfillment for therapists, but the reason I exist in this role as a therapist fulfillment coach fundamentally, I think is what you just said in that way that I've never used these terms. We are very compliance driven. And so we are deeply conditioned. It's easy for us to become conditioned as really compliance driven people because you know when i look at our graduate school education it's immensely focused on compliance and it's a pressure cooker of stress and poverty because we're not paid as interns which at our practice we found a workaround but we legitimately had to do a workaround how bad yeah. is that right yeah no completely crazy but like just to give you an example it's so true though right of of the compliance i mean years and years ago was just a generalist accountant work with kind of whoever came through the door right and that that was not serving my higher purpose certainly but within serving any industry i've had plenty of clients before accidentally buy a boat with their not not plenty this happened one time accidentally buy a boat with the funds that were earmarked for their taxes, right? Where we had said, like, here are the funds for your taxes. Don't spend this. They accidentally, quote, air quotes here, bought a boat. Sometimes it was a car, a Tesla when they were new. Like I've seen this happen over and over again in non-therapy industries. I've never actually seen a therapist client do anything crazy like that with their tax money, with their emergency fund. Like they just, if you tell them this is what it's for, they're going to listen usually. In in many ways, that's a that's a good thing where it helps you kind of manage your money well. But in other ways, it's it, it can be a bad thing, I would imagine. Well, that's the rub, isn't it? That actually being compliance driven, we are. If you look at my homepage, I'm looking at it in my mind right now. It's like we are excellent students of our culture, and if mm-hmm. we adopt a certain culture, we're, and so in this instance, what a benefit to be like, okay, Julie, you're an expert. Tell me what to do awesome. I'm not going to worry about my taxes now and, and all of that. And on the other hand, when powerful others like professors um, who or who come to mind and not to hate on them, but they're deeply indoctrinated when they're telling you, you're going to live in poverty and you're going to have to, and you must, and you've got to cut your chops first before you can go private and all of mm-hmm. these interesting things and saying, gets do self-care and self-sacrifice it's confusing and it's hard for us compliance driven people yeah absolutely so you we've opened the door to profit first and we've kind of opened the door to how it's amazing for therapists and yet some of our personality profiles perhaps also can leave us open to the issues of compliance I know that we want to talk a little bit about some of what you've seen. You've talked about some of the good things about this, that therapists often, if they learn a system, they will use it and be successful. What about some other things you've seen in mentoring therapists around their taxes and their money? I think one of the the pieces that has been surprising with me, and it's still somewhat surprising to me after all these years, is sometimes we have to convince our clients that their practice deserves to be profitable, that they deserve to make money. And I would also say good money doing the the work that they do in the community. And again, like if you look at a 
a spinal surgeon, you don't have to convince them to charge a high fee. Like they're in such high demand, right? They're highly specialized. They're, there's no pro bono spots or, or, you know, very, very few and far between. Like this is what you have to pay if you want to get the service. And so that's something that is always surprising to me that therapists are willing to put basically everyone else ahead of themselves in the context of group practice that might be definitely the clients, but also the clinicians, the admin, like everyone else. And then if there's something left, then great, I will take that that thing that is left. But profit first reverses the accounting equation, right? So we, you've typically, hopefully most practice owners have looked at a profit and loss or PL where you'll see income minus expenses equals profit, right? So a profit first turns that around and says, we're going to take your income minus your profit, and that is going to equal your expenses. So we're carving out profit from the very beginning, and then you're going to have a smaller amount left, but that's what you have available to play with. Because I know I know that if you're running a practice on $1,000 a month, you can run it on $950. I'm sure of that, right? I'm sure that you can find a way to make that work. And you can add zeros or takeaway zeros. If you're running a practice on $10,000 a month, you can find a way to run a practice on Nine thousand nine hundred. You can. There is a way to figure that out. So we're we're saying just you're going to think of your available pot of money as a smaller one, and that is going to be beneficial for you and for your practice. Yes, beautiful. The constraints really work, and I'm thinking about Mike's uh, Parkinson's law that he talks about in the original profit first. And when I've thought about that, for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's really looking at when we have available resources. We will use them all. And it's, you can look at it in grad school of like, did you have four weeks to do the paper? Okay. Did you use yeah. four weeks or did you use four hours to do the paper? Like it's, right. it's about a mindset as well in terms of resources, but it feels kind of nice from my experience to constrain things in the positive direction. And I don't like a lot of constraints. I'm going to be real. I, I maybe have a bit of an atypical personality for therapists where I'm not very compliant actually. You're, you're the opposite. Well, I think it, I think it can work then too, because the reality, as you mentioned, Parkinson's law, right? That says that your the demand for something will expand to meet its supply. So if you have a larger supply, your demand will expand. I remember in college, I was a receptionist, and one summer afternoon, my job was to print all the financial details out for my VP boss who was getting a midlife crisis car. It was a yellow Porsche Carrera. And he was very excited about this car. So I was printing his, you know, his W-2, like all the different things that he needed. And my surprise must have shown on my face because I walked into his office and I was like, he makes how much money? And he still needs to get a loan for this car. Like, how is that possible? There's so much money. So I think he he kind of saw the expression on my face and said, Julie, I've got something to tell you. When you make more money, you just have bigger problems. You always, you you make more, you spend more. I promise you will see this in life. And that just was kind of like knowledge bomb dropped on me. And it's so true though. As you grow, you just get used that that becomes your new normal. So what if you keep that dollar amount smaller and you can make that work? Oh yeah, mic drop. I also heard how you were being conditioned there, perhaps, how you could have taken it as conditioning and gone, okay, well, I accept that and that will be my reality and I'll just keep ballooning and go on the hedonic treadmill. But you decided maybe there was another way and I would encourage therapists to think back on your professors who told you you might be in poverty, et cetera, and there is probably another way. Just like you went, that doesn't have to be your life and you're literally teaching people now how 
you don't have to let your lifestyle balloon to where it becomes suffocating. Yeah. And maybe there was a little projection in there as well, right? Like explaining this is, this is how it is. That's why I'm, I'm acting this way. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you're a non-therapist, but you're the first therapist to come on here to explain what we're doing here with this conditioning through projection. So kudos. because. <laughs> Yeah, that's what our professors were doing when they were instilling something that they were operating from. And I love them, but not all of us question this conditioning. And I'm going to be real. I lived for a long time, the therapist, the typical therapist conditioning. And so I'd love to hear, and maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm, I would still love to hear it. Maybe this is your mental health revolution piece, but what is it that you're really passionate about that you'd like therapists to know? Well, I feel like part of my role in the world is changing the narrative that being a therapist has to be a vow of poverty. Like I I have seen therapists in poverty and I've seen therapists that are doing really well. And I can tell you that the therapists who are doing really well have a much larger impact. And so often that that vow of poverty comes as a, well, I'm I'm sacrificing myself so I can do more good. And that's actually not true. And so I I, I want to change that narrative. I want therapists to be able to, to be unapologetic about making a good living doing what they do. Like the, the work is so important, right? There's so much value to this work. But like, why are we going around here saying like, you have to, you can't make any money. That's that's just crazy. And I also, but I also have seen it, right? We've worked with hundreds of clients. Like I know it can be done. So I, I just want this for everyone. Mm, yes. As you were talking, I saw a group of therapists in my mind and I was thinking about something you said earlier, which was that it feels incongruent on some level to both serve others and make money. The interesting thing is what came up in my mind just now as I was hearing that, and so important what you're saying, such a mic drop, is that many therapists either teach self-compassion, or we at least believe in it, and the paradigm that seems to change things is this focus on taking care of others, taking care of others, taking care of others. We are a person. Each individual therapist is a person, and when you look at self-compassion, it start, the pieces start to fall into place of that you cannot take care of another person unless you're taking care of yourself. It's an unsustainable equation. It will eventually mean you just can't do it or you have a smaller impact or you do it from a place of where you're not well. So self-compassion is often a light bulb for people in this equation where we were taught you got to look after other people and sacrifice yourself covertly or overtly. I see how that's baked into graduate school. Possibly baked into us as children because helpers seem to be getting this message of if you have needs it's really threatening to other people whereas if you don't have needs and you take care of other people's needs you're praised and that's an early lesson yeah, possibly even more so for women also right I, I see this across helpers but i think it's even more prevalent for women women helpers as well Absolutely. I don't think it's an accident that more helpers are women as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much impact. In the last few years, we've seen this weird 
shift where it's, you know, it's been easier than ever for someone to go out in private practice. So that means for group practice, the rates have just gone up and up and up and up. And so we've had over the last couple of years, for example, we've had clients come to us and say, hey, I, I interviewed this therapist. I really want to hire them. But someone is offering them an 80% split. Can I match this? And although that is very generous, our answer is always no. No, you cannot because you have to be able to make a profit. If this person is going to come work for you, you must make a profit. If you are going to lose money on each session, because if you give them 80% and right, we, if, if you're adding on payroll tax and benefits to that, like forget it, then, then you're done. But if, can you even cover your overhead with what's left, let alone profit like that? It, the math does not make sense. So as much as you, you want someone and you want to add them to your team, like the math still has to make sense for you because if they leave, right. Or if something happens or a pipe bursts, like you are, you as the business owner are left holding the bag, you are the one rebuilding, figuring things out. The biller quit. You're the one 10, 11 PM at night doing, doing the billing and that you have to get paid for that. You, you, there has to be a financial benefit for that. You have to, there has to be. So we've seen like it, it can manifest in so many different ways, but there has to be profit in the practice. 100% as a group practice owner, I'm sitting here like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's interesting that, yeah, I hear for that person who's offering the 80% that, that I can't imagine how that would be a thrive fee or whatever they're doing would, would truly cover what's needed to thrive and to profit. Absolutely. It can be hard to have, uh, I was just thinking about this earlier, actually, as a group practice owner, whether you're talking about having group practice clinicians that you're managing, so to speak, or you're talking about clients, or you're talking about your personal life, to be in a place where people are not pleased with you is not easy. Ooh, that is hard too, right? Where people feel like you're not giving them enough or not doing enough. But I, I also think there's a, an element there of non-business owners are just always going to have a hard time understanding business owners. That's just naturally going to happen, right? So, oh, why are you only giving me only, air quotes again, 50 or 55% of my fee? Because there's a lot of things that are being done for you. You're being given clients, right? All the marketing is done for you. You're not scheduling, your billing is done. You show up, you see your clients and you float away magically and all the things happen, but like there is a cost to that and you have to be able to pay for that. Someone has to pay for it. And in private practice, when someone says, you know what, I want to keep my full fee, I'm going to go into private practice. They do get to keep their full fee, but what they don't get to keep is all their time. They're exchanging time for money. So while they may be making more in dollars, they're usually spending exponentially more hours doing all the things, right? Tinkering with the website. Where am I going to find clients? Reaching out to this doctor for a referral. So there's there's a time investment that isn't necessarily quantified in dollars, but that is really, really significant. Totally. For us, we try to build a group practice where we're kind of doing the best of all worlds, where people get the autonomy, where people get these different things. But of course, the, the fee splitting has to be sustainable. It's really, I'm just thinking back to a meeting I had where we laid this out for people. Here are the pros and the cons of being in a group, in our group, because here's the pros of being on your own. Here's the pros of even working in an agency. And they're different pros and they're different cons. Absolutely. When I look at my work and I even look at this quiz, 
that I'm launching. It's like, oh, people's values are different. Some people like security and predictability, and that's cool. Those are not the same people who like who yeah. their highest value is creativity, freedom, and independence. So my hope for people is that they do that. They may understand some of the mismatch as well of like being in an agency when your highest value is independence or freedom or creativity. Ooh, that's not going to be. That's going to be hard. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Everything you've said. I'm just sitting here like my neck hurts. I'm just shaking my head. Like, <laughs> yes. 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 All the things. All the things. So do you feel like we addressed some of the common pitfalls maybe for therapists? Let's circle back there a little bit. One thing I see happen often, and it is it is heartbreaking, is that first year of private practice, it's really, really easy to forget about saving for taxes. And when you go from being an employee somewhere where all the taxes have been withheld from your check and what you get in your bank account is what you actually have to spend, right? Plus or minus a few dollars, but for the most part, it should be pretty close if you've done your withholding correctly. But when you're self-employed, that's not at all the case. But we see often first-year practice owners just spend everything, mostly because they they don't know what they don't know, right? So it's it's normal and easy to want to bootstrap your first year or two or three, right? Whatever whatever it takes. Where like I'm going to learn how to pr- program my own website. I'm going to do my own taxes. I'm going to do this. I'm going right. They're, I'm going to do my own marketing. I'm going to figure it all out. And that is wonderful. I think there's a lot of value in doing some of those things, but you don't know what's lurking around the corner. And so when you're not working with an accountant, getting professional help, you might not realize that you're going to owe federal tax, state or provincial tax. In the US, we have self-employment tax as well. And that's going to add up to a big chunk of change. So that's one thing that we see happen often. And unfortunately, it can follow therapists for years to come, right? There's always a solution, but... The IRS is not going to let you settle your debt in most cases when you have successful business. And so you might have to go on a payment plan and pay back over three years and save for this year's taxes, right? So there's a lot of different things that are going to come up. So that might be one of the areas where we see people make mistakes. I also see a lot of practice owners then fail to make that shift from bootstrapping to I've got an established practice now. I'm making some the money I need to make. Let me hire out the things that are not my area of genius, right? When we look at established, large, million-dollar-plus group practices, they have usually an HR consultant. They have definitely an accountant. They usually have an attorney or many attorneys on retainer, maybe a business attorney, an employment attorney. They have surrounded themselves with experts because they know they are not the expert at all those things. So they're going to kind of direct traffic or be the conductor and get the help from all the people that they need. And that helps propel them into this new, larger practice as well. Absolutely. Working with professionals. And I even see a role for coaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Huge. I know I've invested a lot in coaching anyone who's listened to my episodes on that. But what that did, it was an investment. Like it's paying me back for what it did to open my mind to all the different professionals that are out there to support me so that I can exponentially grow, support my practice, support my coaching. And then I look at what you're offering with Profit First for therapists. That is an established system that's tailored exactly to therapists. So yeah, 
Uh, yeah. Big plug to yeah. get the help you need, even from the beginning, even as someone who's loved to bootstrap. But you put it in a great frame, which is the zone of genius. And we can work in our zone of excellence quite happily. Many people will live their whole life there. It feeds a lot of people when we're in our zone of excellence. Yeah. Many people can work in their zone of competence. That's draining, though. And our zone of incompetence, we all know it because it is just awful. And I've seen a lot of therapists trying to muddle through the zone of incompetence or maybe competence just to save some money. And I get that. But boy, is it freeing to consider shifting that mindset. You talk about a thrive fee, right? Like when you are setting a fee that makes sense for you, you know, when we look at the kind of the pros and cons list, if you if there's something that you hate doing and you're avoiding it, right? Usually you're not outsourcing all the things at once, right? You're not getting everyone and, and getting a biller and an admin and a, a VA and a bookkeeper. Like those are not usually happening all at once. There's kind of a progression, mm-hmm. but that progression can be whatever you want it to be. Usually it's going to be the thing that you like the least. If you never answer the phone and people are trying to call you, maybe you get someone to answer the phone, right? But if you are trading something that you hate doing, usually you're going to be able to find someone less expensive than you to do that, right? Because you're a therapist, you're you're highly educated, you're worth a lot of money. That is a value add, right? If you have to pay someone $50 for two hours where you can go make $200, that math makes so much sense. It is so worth it. So then you start piecing away a little little pieces here and there. And then you end up doing like just the thing that you like to do, but also the, the, the part of the business that needs you, right? The As a business shifts and grows, like you're increasingly doing visionary work as well, right? You, you might move from working in the business as a solo clinician to working on the business as a group practice owner, where you may be still seeing clients, but there's a good chance that your client load is reducing over time because the business needs just different things from you. And so that's powerful to be able to recognize like when that is happening to be able to make that shift. Yes, absolutely. I like how you said that, that the zone of genius, what makes it our zone of genius is that someone else couldn't do it. It is our zone of genius. This is where we thrive. I love doing podcast episodes. I walk away from these like jazzed. They give me energy. Yeah. And That's a highlight of knowing if something's in your zone of genius. If it feels like it takes energy, which many things do, no problem. But if it gives you energy or if it's one of those things where you're like, I don't think I could ever get tired of this. Well, chances are you're doing some amazing work in that space that you couldn't outsource that. And you, even if you could, you wouldn't want to, because that's the stuff that really jazzes you. And for me, my whole focus is fulfillment. And being what we said earlier, being a group of people who might be highly compliance-based, and my cat had a lot to say there, it doesn't necessarily mean we're doing what would be fulfilling and there's a genius. We're just getting things done. In Western society, often being able to get a lot done and checking all the boxes and being a great student, your culture is what makes you professional and successful but this we're talking about a new definition i think listen i have been guilty of that yeah me more too. times more times than than not but yes like it 
you know, it doesn't have to be the same for everyone, but it doesn't have to be the same at each stage of your, your business as well, right? Your zone of genius might be a specific modality that you use with your clients. And then in 10 years, that might be you training your clinicians on that specific modality versus you doing the direct client work, right? Like that still has an impact. It's still the thing that you are really good at, but it's just different. It shifts over time. We kind of moved away from profit first, but like all those decisions come back. There's a financial component to mm-hmm. all of them, mm-hmm. right? Of like in many cases, the thing that only you can do, your zone of genius item is, is a high ticket item because it's important in the practice. Yes. You described my journey, which was 10 years of doing something I really loved and became an expert in or have expertise in and now to train others to do this. That's what I do in the group practice. So do you see clients in the practice? I have a total of one client. One? Okay. One whole client. Okay. One whole, client, one whole therapy client, no pressure to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I have one whole therapy client. The rest of who I work with is therapists in one way or another. I work with therapists. Yeah. I love it. They've become my client and I, I absolutely am so passionate. Zona genius stuff here is I want to see like yourself. I want to see therapists out of poverty. I want to see them out of surviving. And we have such amazing talents in this because we know how to help people be well. We just got to shift the lens. It's just really yeah. a lens shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So. I have a question and it's more personal Ooh. Ooh. and it's about, tell us maybe two sides of a coin about a time that you held yourself back from going after something and a time you really went for it and perhaps took what felt like a risk. Well, I, I think both sides of the coin relate to, to my business. My childhood was very happy, but my mom was a serial entrepreneur. She loved starting a business. So she would start a business. That's the part that she really liked, right? Just the starting, the marketing, the ideas, like, where is it going to be? What are we going to sell? What, all of those things. And so I saw many cycles of that in my life. And one of my, so one of my first memories is of my mother's sewing shop. She had a little store. It was like a little Joanne fabric and there was all kinds of beautiful fabrics and buttons and scissors and all, you know, all the things for, for sewing. She was, she was very good at that. And so she loved that store. I loved that store. I feel like I had so many adventures there. That store eventually closed though. That was the first of many cycles that I saw of getting really, really excited, kind of the excitement cresting, and then the slow descent of like, what are we going to do? That specific business, when it ended, that happened to also coincide with the end of my my parents' marriage. And so that was the first cycle of business ends, we move, you know, my sister and I go to a new school, we get new friends, like everything changes. And there were multiple, multiple cycles of that in my childhood. So my personal narrative was, if my mom cannot figure this out, neither can I, like, I'm just never going to be a business owner. Fast forward to adulthood. And my wonderful husband is also a business owner. So we have three beautiful kids together. And at some point I realized like to be able to have the kind of flexibility that I needed with three very young kids, the traditional work environment that that was just not going to work for us anymore. Again, my husband's a business owner, like he was commuting to a client site three hours a day, an hour and a half each direction. Like, so I was the parent who had to do all the things, right? If school nurse calls, that's me. Someone needs to go to the dentist, it's me. 
there's a day off from school, that's me. And so at that point, I feel like the industry has changed, but that did not exist, like uh, where you don't just go and grind out the work. It did not exist. And so I slowly came to that. Like I was kicking and screaming about, I, maybe I should start my own business. Maybe I should. And it took me weeks, if not months, to even say that out loud to someone. Like maybe this is the thing for me. So I, I feel like I, I held myself back for a long time just because of my story and like seeing everything I saw as a, as a child, like my mom was a really smart woman. If she couldn't figure it out, why, why would I be able to? And to me, the answer to that, honestly, was profit first. I read the original profit first by Mike Michalowicz, like very shortly as I was starting my business and thought, this is it for me. This is how I'm going to make this work. So that's also kind of how I then took that risk and went into business, which again, like with three young kids, it's bold and challenging and difficult. Like I was part of the 4am club for a very long time. I would work from 4am to 7am, get the kids off to school and then come back, you know, do the other things. But like, that's what it took for this to work. And it, it worked for our family, but Profit First was a huge part of my story for that because I made sure from the very beginning, like I didn't want my, my family to go through what I went through. I didn't want the constant drain on the family and like just how difficult those relationships were sometimes because of like, we're out of money. We have to change everything. We have to sell all our stuff and move somewhere else. Like I knew it had to be different. And this gave me the formula for it to be different. So that's the hard thing. And I did, I started this, this business many years ago. Yes. It's interesting in that I trust when people come on the podcast that I don't, you know, I go with my intuition your story that you just described, I can relate to more than I can even believe about my own childhood. Yet watching my grandmother's business be highly, highly, highly successful and then not watching my dad be highly successful and then go bankrupt. Actually, when I decided to start practice living in the North, totally burnt out and unwell, living in the Arctic and coming back to my home in Southern Ontario, it was about, I read Profit First. Absolutely. Right at the beginning. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, that's an amazing coincidence of, of events. Like it has given me the confidence to know like there, there's a system. I I can figure this out. And it has been true every month since I've since I've been in business. And I'm so thankful for that. It's like that's why I want to shout this message from the rooftops. Like, hey, it works. You need to do this. If you're not doing profit first, you need to. Yeah. I will be on with a megaphone beside you. Yes, absolutely. I've seen what happens in a business and I've done it in this business where I've used it and been so successful and then gone off of it and thought, what am I doing? What is, this has become stressful. So I've battle tested personally in a private practice, what happens when you do do it and what happens when you don't. And Parkinson's law is uh, kind of like the conditioning we received as therapists. It's insidious, it's pretty invisible and it, it works its way in. Yeah. What's so easy to do, right? Like most, most people are going to, when they are making a spending decision, right? They're going to pull out their phone and they're going to go on the bank app and say, do I have money? Yes or no. Right. And in that, that dollar amount that you see in your bank account is either going to tell you like, yes, you're, you know, go spend or, Ooh, that's not good, but it's giving you information. So profit first is just a way to give you more information and better information still with just that one glance at your bank account, right? It's not asking you to 
be someone else who you're not. You can still, you can leverage your behavior instead of trying to change it, but you're going to have just a lot more great information. Just, mm-hmm. just looking at your bank account. Yeah. Leveraging the bank balance accounting, which we all do and isn't a bad thing rather than maybe some of the other more in-depth accounting things that many people are just scared of. There are a lot. To really know your cash position, you need to look at your profit and loss, your balance sheet, your statement of cash flow. And that also assumes that it's up-to-date and accurate, right? Which for many business owners, it's not. But the reality is no one, no one does that, right? Like, Even I look at my bank balance, I'm an accountant and I look Mm -hmm. at my bank balance when I make a decision because like, that's how humans work. Doing my annual forecast, I look at all the things. Yes, absolutely. But like, we all have the, you know, this is how we're wired. And so you don't have to change and like spend three hours a week looking at your finances. You really don't. Yes. Ooh, that's probably good news for anyone listening. Yeah. Well, I'd to know as we're wrapping up, what would you like the audience to know, Julie? I would like you to know that you can take your profit first. You can, you can, and you should. I would also say you should. You can and you should. There, profit first is a wonderful way for you to do that. I'm sure there are other ways out there. This is the way that I know and love and teach, but you can have a profitable practice and every practice deserves to be profitable. So that is what I wish for you. I want you to make a good living doing what you do. And if you haven't found the way, there is a way. Mm, Beautiful. And when does your book launch into the world? So Profit First for Therapists is available on May 2nd. You can pre-order at any time before that, but it will be out on the streets on May 2nd, anywhere you like to buy books online. It's also available on Kindle and Audible or audiobook as well. So Go check it out. Ooh, audiobook. That was wise. I want to just tell you that. That yes. was beautiful. I read the audiobook with Forward by Mike Michalowicz. So you'll hear a little bit of Mike and a whole lot of me. And that was a, a whole lot of fun to record. So the audiobook also comes with an audiobook companion Ooh. because there's a lot of charts, right? Charts and calculators and all that. So we have that guide. So if you're someone who likes to listen, like there, we've, we've really tried to set it up in a way that you can follow along and still do all the exercises, but get that listening in. Incredible. And so we will provide links in the show notes for anything that would benefit you listeners. And Julie, I just want to sincerely thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. It's all mine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.